recorded on Tuesday, November 3rd, 2013, in St. Louis, Missouri. This Agile Life, episode 27. That's some nasty Kool-Aid. Welcome to This Agile Life, a podcast about what it's like to be agile in the real world. Hello, everyone. I'm the host of This Agile Life, John Sextro. Joining me today, I have three great co-hosts. I'll start with Mr. Nate Mackey. Nate, how are you doing? I am doing fantastic, John. Thank you very much. I'm really glad we were able to connect with you again and get you back on the podcast before you disappear with life stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting way too involved in too many things. It's, I, I just can't stop. I don't know what's going on, but I'm glad I could find some time to do it. And thank you again. And also joining us tonight, Amos King. Hey, John. I'm having a, a, probably the best Tuesday of my life today. Um, but, you know, every day is better than the last whenever you're being an Agile developer. So today is pretty awesome. Wow. Glad to hear that. It's the opposite of the guy in office space where every new day of his life was the worst day of his life. I'm pretty sure that, that uh, putting covers on the TPS reports was, was not an Agile practice. Definitely not. <laughs> and also joining us tonight, Jason Tice. Hi, John. The Agile Factor. Yes, the Agile Factor's here. And actually, the Agile Factor is excited because now we can officially start what I'm calling the move on strategy. Now that we've weathered the storm of the infamous Jason and Amos planning debate, we can remove the official response and put some new content on the Agile Factor. <laughs> Great. I can't wait for the new contact on the Agile Factor. Content, not contact. Content. Exactly. So are you going to start saying the Agile Factor in third person like uh, Bill O'Reilly does? The, the Factor? The Factor thing? So. You weren't here the last time. We, we got the finger going on. We got everything. We might even talk about who gets to give the last word tonight on a few factors. Oh, nice. <laughs> Only to realize it doesn't matter. Should it be the Agile Refactor? Oh, hey. oh man. Uh, see, now I got to go get the domain name and oh, make a ton of Nailed dice. It. <laughs> you better hurry up, and it'll be the point counterpoint. It'll be the agile factor versus the agile refactor. I, I'm I'm doing it now. You better hurry, Tice. You oh, can hear my go keyboard going away like crazy. Hey, Miss, go for it. I value uh, it. As I said when we talked about the agile factor, imitation is the most sincere form of flattery. Thank you, <laughs> Amos. You are not allowed to type during the podcast. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> so, John, this this uh, podcast needs structure. What are we doing tonight? Actually, we did some planning and some preparation work, kind of unusual for this Agile life. I cannot believe we actually, who condoned that activity? Yeah, we all did. Well, Nate, maybe. Nate, Nate came up with the idea to talk about product owners. Yeah, and, I've been wanting to do this a long, for a long time. And as I was driving home tonight, Nate, I was thinking about product owners and discussing this on the podcast with you guys this evening. And I was thinking about what did we do before Agile and before we had product owners and who were the people that were involved in deciding what to do and what to work on? And Well, I can tell you that my background, which you know, I grew up as a developer, not in an Agile organization. I, I, I grew up in a good, a good IT shop, corporate IT, um, but we definitely were not Agile. And we had business analysts who... Um, who went and talked to the customer and figured out what we should do. And they were the ones that wrote everything up in advance um, about how the requirements should work and then decided in what order to do things and how to hand them out, which developer to give them to. Between a, a business analyst and a project manager and maybe like a lead developer, um, you know, all that stuff kind of got just handed to me. And, uh, and then later on in my career doing that, I actually uh, found I was, fairly decent at writing those specifications myself and so i felt like oh i don't need a business analyst and i would just write those same specifications but i thought i was so much better at it because i was a developer and i knew how to write them in a way that a developer would understand and it was doing that really that led me to agile because it just flat doesn't work and i remember so nate, so nate when you were writing i guess development spec we'll call them because this is pre-user stories how were you ensuring that the business stakeholders had sufficient understanding of what you were of what you were putting together for the for the team to work towards? 
Uh, it was mainly me talking to them uh, about it. I mean, I wrote parts of the spec so that a business user could understand it, and they would have like screenshots on it, or they would have um, you know descriptions that a, that a user it made sense to a user, and then it would go into the you know the ugly details about the, what the developer was supposed to do to make that work. But it was a lot of talking to people, you know, and getting making sure that what I was saying made sense to them. I remember but, those days. Well, Nate, I remember those days too with the business analyst going off and having, you know, rad sessions or jad sessions and yep. sitting down with roomfuls of users and wading through paperwork and diagrams yep. and, and coming up with these big giant uh, requirements documents and then handing them off. And like you said, that just wasn't a sustainable, realistic way to do things. And who did you go to when you had a question? about how something was supposed to work or what was the most important piece of the system or that, that was my, really my fatal flaw uh in in doing it is that if i did not uh if i did not have enough knowledge to get everything right then once i wrote all my specs and handed them all out and people got to work all it took was for one junior developer to come up and ask a very pointed question and the whole house of cards would come tumbling down you know oh i didn't even think about that you know what what are we going to do this is this on some basic level this is not going to work and then you go you know tell everybody stop working on those specs i'm gonna have to go in a you know and and close myself off for a day and try to rewrite them all so that now they make sense and you know doing that a couple times and uh you realize uh, what a fallacy the whole thing was isn't that requirement change what uh all of what agile is trying to fix that yeah, absolutely. Hey, let's go hide in a room. Right, that's exactly right. And, and we're we're talking, you know, waterfall versus agile at this point, versus, rather than agile with a product owner versus agile without. What right. I'd like to discuss. Yeah, let's get down to that and talk about product owners and their roles in agile. And as we've already been hinting around, we're we're going to discuss um, what product owners do and what they don't do, or what they should do, or what you want them to do or what you wish you would they would do and, and how they would do that so on agile some teams in agile some teams have what we call the product owner which is the person uh, who is the domain expert for the project or is sometimes the person who's paying for the project maybe in smaller uh, on smaller projects but is typically that one single person you go to and talk to and work with to collaborate on the project to determine what's the most important thing to work on and uh, how to go about working on it. And they're the person who's in your demo, right? So this is the sort of thing we're going to talk about with our product owner. Sure. sure. And I'd like, to, I'd like to talk a little bit about the distinction first between a customer and a product owner, if there is one. Is there a distinction between a customer, a typical customer on an Agile team and a product owner? So by customer, it's a user of, of the, the product? Is that how you're defining customer? I don't know. Is, it, is, it, is it the person that pays the bills? Think, it looks think, like Jason like, wants to talk. I think there's a couple of ways to answer that question. I think the delineation is to say that the, obviously the customer is probably a group of people that do pay the bills, <clears> but then there's moreover, it's really talking about the actual activities that the product owner supports. Your product owner should be fairly embedded, if not a you know, a regular member of a team, your customer is going to be a little bit more withdrawn, I think, is the way things usually pan out. And where things sometimes go wrong is when a product owner has the role, but they don't have sufficient involvement in the team so the team understands what a definition of success is. What do you think, Amos? I, I think that uh, Tice is on the right track there. Um, one important thing, though, is I think that a product owner is is someone from the customer side though. So they are, a product owner is part of the customer um, uh, entity. So, you know, you're, work, you're working for a company and they have someone who is designated as the product owner who is part of the Agile team. So you have an on-site customer every day or not, not necessarily on-site, but um, available to you all the time. What's, what's interesting there, Amos, is that you use the word customer to describe the product owner. So, Nate, what were you going to say? I, I was just going to say, I, I'm not sure that I agree with that, although just to back up a bit, you know, 
Um, Synchrony has been doing Agile for, I guess, 10 years now. And we have yet to have a project where we named someone as product owner, where we said that that was their title. Um, I, I think all the roles are being satisfied in one way or another. But part of why I wanted to talk about this is that we always felt like the customer, there was some representative of the customer that could be that person. And that was sufficient between them and the team to figure out what it is that you needed to work on next. And I, I think we have found, and we're finally admitting that that, that just all by itself is not always true. And that, that we, there's really a need for this specific role that people are playing in a specific way that we, we haven't been doing. Jason? So what I was going to add is I think that, you know, Amos, to kind of, again, go with Nate on a little bit of a disagreement with your statement is I think the role needs to be supported and it, it doesn't really matter who does the role. Um, I can imagine there are, there are customers out there who would see the ability of, uh, you know, an application development shop to provide a product owner that can help them as a service might be desirable. Um, there's a, there's a desire, there, there's an opportunity there, um, as Nate mentioned, for a, a dev shop to provide that role if a customer wants it. Really comes down to how the customer wants to manage their engagement, and if they have, you know, a person who can be significantly involved with the team almost on a day-to-day -day basis. And when I say significantly involved, this doesn't mean just coming to the daily standard meeting or the scrum session. It means being there to be responsive to questions the team asks. If a customer can supply that person, then great. Um, if a customer can't, perhaps that's something that um, is something that the, you know, the dev shop could provide. As, as a consulting service to help the customer ultimately be successful. Right. I think that's exactly right. And I think that that, you know, again, we, we haven't done it, so that's why I'm, I'm partially looking for input too. But I feel like there is a role that someone could play even if they don't have the domain knowledge of the customer. They, they will need it. They will need to learn it just like the, the developers do over time. But there's a, there's a particular skill set someone can use in that role to be able to, to help them. That's, that's what I'm thinking that we are in need of. Can we define um, what each, what our expectations are of a product owner? Because I think that this could be more than one person. It could include people uh, that are developers, QA. It could include everybody in like a whole team approach. Like maybe this just isn't one person. So Here's the, here's the situation that, that I see that keeps happening. Um, we get a customer on board, and the customer may not have a whole lot of experience with software development. It, it tends to be worse when this happens. So the, the customer uh, knows they want a software product, knows that you know, what they like, but they don't really understand how software is developed. And what tends to happen is you say, all right, customer, and if, you, if you're in a good situation where you've said, okay, we're doing this agile, you've put a bucket of money together and we've sold them on the idea we're going to do the most important stuff first. Well, the problem is that the customer doesn't really understand what that means to do the most important stuff first. And so to them, a lot of times everything is important, especially if it's a new product and they've got this whole list of things that they think everything's got, got to do this. You know, this, this has to work completely. What I have seen happen, this pattern I've seen that we get into as we start on one, on one thing, and maybe it's a perfectly legitimate thing to start on, maybe it's hard, or maybe it's just the first thing that you get to, or it's the core of the system, or whatever it is, but then you tend to just grind into that on and on until the customer is completely satisfied, which is great. And the, the development team is all for that. Okay, you want to move this field over here. Okay, you want to add another field, and you keep going, and you grind through that, and then you're all of a sudden you're halfway through the, the money. And you've only gotten a you know a tenth of the functionality done. So you get you get your login screen. Right. And if and if somebody had been there who understood how the development process works and how to talk the customer through to, you know, what what's the, how to prioritize and how to do the most important stuff first so you don't waste their money. Um that, you know, I think that would have we would have avoided a lot of problems. The piece that I wanted to add to what Nate said is, you know, Everything we're talking about here, you know, Agile is hard. You know, we talk about chaos theory. Um, it's hard to do. And sometimes, it, to what Nate said, as a, you know, if you're in the heat of development, you're building a login screen, you know, it's hard to, to build. You lose track of the overall business value that you're contributing to the project. 
Right. And really what the product owner needs to be there is an advocate for both the business as well as the team to say that, okay, we've been working on this login screen for four, for four sprints now. Is it really time to move on and say there's other features that we need to get done as part of the project to ensure we deliver the desired business value and really help to ensure that everybody remains focused on what needs to get done? And I think what they'd say is sometimes in the heat of development, when that role is not actively staffed and properly supported, it's, it's easy to lose track of, is the soft, is the code I'm working on at this very moment, is it delivering significant business value in the eyes of my customer? I think in the, in the specific case of when you're, a, when you're providing a service to a client, there's some amount of uh, responsibility that, that you have as the experts in software development to bring some of these things to the table. And you wouldn't necessarily expect that those folks are going to, at the business that is purchasing your service, is going to have that. And I know you, you, you understand that that's something that you need to do. But there are some very specific things that I think are, need to be addressed in some way on a project. And those are, you need somebody who's going to be responsible for defining uh, the product vision, who's going to be the holder of that product product vision, who's going to help convey that to the to the team and to the um, developers and everyone involved. And you need that person to help with defining a release plan. And then finally, backlog prioritization. Those are my three keys for a product owner. Now, that's it doesn't need to all manifest in a single person. It can be spread out across people, but I think you need to have all of those things satisfied in one way or another on a project. And I think, again, as the experts providing this service, that then you need to be able to come to the table to the customer and say, we need to do these things. So we're going we're gonna to bring a person in. They're going to help you understand how to go about doing these things, kind of hold your hand, guide you through that process, and educate the customer about this process and about Agile uh, as it relates to that process specifically. I, I agree that on product vision and backlog prioritization, release planning, you already put in your notes that you don't want to talk about planning anymore. Uh, I, I don't, I feel like that's somewhat part of it, but like the ideal situation for a product owner and what can make their job really easy for product vision and backlog prioritization is if you can get the product owner on board and the customer on board um, to get the product in front of actual users and start getting feedback from users. Because once that starts coming in, the product owner keeping that vision and the prioritization it is a lot simpler. And it allows the, if the vision needs to change, it can't before we, we get into a big deep hole where we have some vision that is no longer marketable because it's not what people want. Um, and then the release planning thing, I think that works itself out if we can just produce small stuff and get it out to the users and keep them happy. No, I don't think it just works itself out. It, it, that has to be something that you you do as part of the vision so that you don't end up in the situation where you're halfway through the money. Like Nate said, with only a third of the stuff done. And if, if you just start wandering and start doing things, you're going to accomplish things, but maybe you're not accomplishing the things that the product owner or the customer has envisioned that needs to be accomplished. Well, if you're getting the user feedback, does is that allow that to change that? Yeah, I think the user feedback allows things to change, but the key is that developers want to please. You know, they, they want, the, it makes them happy to see the user happy. And so if the user says, hey, it would be really cool if this little widget, you know, animated and did this particular thing, they're going to want to do that. That sounds like fun. And you know what? The user told us to do it. And they're, they're the ones that are prioritizing. And, and you know, and, and no one's thinking about how do we get this whole thing done? Because the customer's going along and thinking, well, if the developers are doing it, then they must think there's enough time to do it. And the developers are thinking, oh, well, the customer thinks this is important. That's what they told us to do. Oh, you know, and if you don't have I, that person in between. I'm not saying the backlog should be prioritized by the user. I, I think that is the product owner, but the product owner listening to users and not just moving on every whim. Like if you have 99% of your user base saying that I, I need this, like a need, not just a, hey, this would be cool. Right. Um, 
it, it then they're if they're getting that feedback and actually using the feedback instead of just trying to go with every whim that comes their way um, for the backlog prioritization. It's the the I guess the release planning. I, d- I don't think that the release planning is necessary in every agile team. Well, and he, because me, it's just the prioritized backlog. If it's going right out the door as soon as the work is done, then I don't need necessarily release planning. I just need you to keep prioritizing things. Well, Amos, there is one other type of release plan that I think is important to draw attention to. It's not applicable in all scenarios, but if you're if you're looking across a portfolio of projects, one thing that product owners should do is they should look across those projects to identify the features that that provide the most business value. So example, if you've got multiple projects or teams working in parallel, if you know if a team has got to where they've implemented 70% of, of the of the of the proposed business value of a project, and then there's like features on another project that maybe have more business value, there's a question to have with the business stakeholders to say that last 30% isn't really needed or should we move on? And if you're a product owner and you're talking to other product owners between teams, you can start to have those types of discussions. And really what that boils down to is saying that, you know, you start a project, you do a release plan, you know, you have the greatest intentions, you think you need all these, all these, all these features and stories, but maybe as you go along, you realize that you've, you've got to the point where you've achieved enough business value that you can actually move on to another, to another project. Yeah, and, and- that seems like a great thing for the product owner to do is help quantify business value. And, and, and to, to clarify, that example is more relevant, I'll say, probably for corporate IT, where you've got a portfolio of projects and, you know, you've got a, a more of a set staff of developers that's kind of split between those projects. So if you're, if you're doing an application development model, that's probably not applicable. But there are a lot of people out there who are looking at how to best manage a portfolio where, you know, the question is, as you get towards the end of a project, Ask yourself, is the last 20% the most important thing you could be developing right now? Or are there some newer projects whereby if you focus development onto those newer projects, you could achieve more business value faster? I think in the, in the example you were giving, Nate, the best solution for you and your guys is some sort of a concept of a proxy product owner, where it's probably a technical person and maybe is a technical lead or a senior developer who has some really solid communication skills uh, that can spend some time with the, the customer and possibly on the customer's or on the client's work site, spend some time understanding things about the vision, understanding what the timelines are, helping come up with some release planning, and then be that person close to the team, sitting with the team on a regular basis, on a daily basis to try to answer questions or at least be the conduit by which questions can be answered directly from the customers in a, uh, in a quick way with, so, you know, that there's some sort of a conduit that that person has directly to a counterpart at the client's site or the customer's site who can turn around and get answers as necessary. That was one of the things I was kind of doing there at the, on some projects I was working on. What do you think about that, Nate? Yeah, I'm just wondering. I mean, that sounds that sounds good, and I think that sounds like the kind of thing I'm thinking of. I'm wondering if there's any reason, and I don't know, if there's any reason why that person should not also be a developer. Does it need to be that that person who's serving that role is not in the code? What do you think, Amos? Um, I I don't I don't think that it necessarily matters if that person is in the code or not, um, as long as they're not making tech, like technical code-based decisions, but I want someone, that's the important thing to me, is I want somebody who can who can make a decision. I, if I call up the product owner and say, hey, uh, we have choices between this and this, then I want them to be able to make that decision and, and be empowered by the customer. That's why I think that they're kind of important that they're part of the customer, or at least so trusted by the customer that they, they can make those decisions. Jason, what do you think? I was going to, I think it's a function of the scope of the project, but to stay, if, if you're in a dynamically changing business environment, it could be a full-time job to keep track of what all the different stakeholders are doing. So I think this idea of having a product owner that spends a lot of time 
in the code base brings with it some risk that the product owner might lose track of the big picture. So if there's a safeguard against it, that's fine, but uh, and it's also a function of how complex the overall environment is. So I think that that's going to be a case-by-case basis. I've personally seen it done successfully, um, where the product owner has been a day-to-day developer and the team's been successful, and I've also seen it fail, where the product owner was simply trying to do too much to the point that they were not effective at the product owner role. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's a, that's a real problem. If the product owner loses focus on the bigger vision and gets, you know, sharply focused in on something that could be detrimental. What do you think, Nate? Yeah, I think, I think what concerned me was whether the product owner could make good decisions that were in the best interest of the customer if they were also in the code. If, if not that, you know, not that it's confrontational or anything, but it just seems like the developers are going to have a certain bias toward what they want to do or what they think is important. And particularly, like Amos said, if they have to make a decision quickly, that they're going to tend to make it maybe like a developer and not like the customer would if they're, if they're really in the code day-to-day. That's the kind of thing I was wondering about. And, and I think Jason is right that it, it, there's probably no hard and fast rule. So it's probably more just what do you watch out for if that situation comes up? And knowing we have a very uh, we have a plan for our discussion here, it seems. But the the one thing that we've been kind of kicking around here, as we've talked about product owner role activities, but we haven't talked about, and, and I'll I'll put a stake in the ground and say that, I mean, number one responsibility of the product owner is to manage and build relationships with the business stakeholders that are responsible for sponsoring the team's work, and that takes time, and so. Because at that juncture, you can have the rapport with the stakeholders, Amos, that you're empowered to make those decisions, and the business stakeholders will support the decisions the product owner makes. If you can you know, be coding with the team and build relationships and track the changing business requirements and do all of that and be successful, uh, that's awesome. But again, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of specific activities that I think an effective product owner needs to do that will have a tendency to take the product owner further and further away from the team. Maybe and, and maybe not, because I think of, I think of the quintessential product owner, in my mind, is Steve Jobs. He's a guy that was, if you think about the development of the iPhone, and if you can imagine how that process went, I'm sure he had lots of people that were saying, the phone should do this, and the phone should do that. And he... Steve Jobs, as the product owner for the iPhone, was very clear to say, you know, I want, I want it to do this. I hear what you're saying. I know that you want this, that, and the other thing, but that's not what we're doing right now. We're going to build the phone. It's going to do these key things, and then we'll think about this other stuff further down the road. Sort of in the in the mindset of minimal marketable features, right? I think Steve was very focused on delivering that very first iPhone with a set of minimal marketable features, I think was evidenced by the fact that there weren't things like an app store initially, and there were a lot of things that the phone didn't have. Sound quality? (laughs) (laughs) But it was, if that had been something that was developed by committee, which was the thing I was trying to think of saying before, where it's a development or a, a product ownership by committee, it gets very... It's all of these compromises that happen rather than one person having a very sharp focus on what they want and then driving a team to deliver on those things. So I'm, I'm currently in an environment where uh, we have 15 different groups that are uh, product owner, I'll say. Um, and how do, you, how do you reconcile that? And these are big groups, uh, not just not just little entities that bring a lot of money. So how do I how how does a product owner take charge and say this is what I want? And I have this vision. And we're moving forward toward it, but still still manage fifteen different groups' expectations. Uh, so I'll go. I'll give you some ideas. I think <clears throat> I have a similar situation. Amos, I have a bunch of people in a business that all have strong opinions about what they want. And the way that we've controlled it is to take one person and say, you're 
the product owner. You're the number one product owner. You're the guy that makes the decisions. One of the key points that you mentioned about product ownership, Amos, was that that product owner needs to synthesize what's going on in terms of the business domain and the folks that are going to be using the system and, and, and then make the tough decisions to determine what's going to be the most important things. And sometimes telling people, yeah, I hear what you're saying. It sounds like a good idea, but we're not going to do that right now. So you need, you need, I think, a single person, maybe a couple of people, if you want some redundancy and failover, so to speak, in product ownership, to be the ones that are really the one and only product owners. Have everything go through them, route through them. Yeah, I agree. I think you're... You're going to need someone who, you know, has some good skills of persuasiveness and um, and can make good relationships. As I think Jason said before, it's it's going to be important for them to develop relationships with those 15 groups somehow and make them all feel like they are on their side. And look, you know, I know we're not doing your favorite thing in the next two weeks, but here it is, you know, uh, in the in the hopper. And it's, you know, and here's why these other things are coming first, and it's going to be a sales job. Well, right? at that, on that note, Nate, I mean, I was going to say, I mean, I'm going to call it like it is. Um, there's a lot of political game to be an effective. You have to have a lot of political game to be an effective product. Owner. I know sometimes people say, you know, Agile, we don't do the politics. Uh, I'll tell you that we said in a prior episode, the big enterprise isn't going away tomorrow. The big enterprise will always have politics and frankly the small enterprises politics too you got to be willing to go into the political arena and navigate that and map that out and learn how to leverage it to be, to be successful and if you're a team or if you have something to do for a team it could really help to create a you know safeguard what the team's doing i think there's a huge payout to doing that but that's a different skill set i i think that um navigating the political arena sometimes gets to be a, a problem for the product owner it gets in the way of of keeping that product vision and, and making a good product because they're trying to make sure that they keep their job and everything like that. I just want to go back to the nineties and buy every product owner a no fear shirt and stickers so that they can, well, well, they can just I mean, they, they can move forward and not worry about it. They just have to make the tough decisions and tell people, Hey, this is the way it needs to be. And this is why yeah, it's, it's, it's more it's, than being political. It's actually telling well, I agree, Amos, and knowing that that's where politics breaks down because you don't—you can't lie because it will always come back to haunt you. But that's where again, all this stuff we're doing and having, having done this—it's this takes time. So again, I see so many so many teams where there is a product owner, there's someone, there's a there's a you know the role is staffed either by a single person or by people who say they have the duties covered. But if they're not if they're not approaching it with the mindset of a full time job. All this stuff about, you know, just even having FaceTime with stakeholders to learn what they're, you know, learn what they really want to do, learn those cool things that maybe they didn't talk about in the planning meeting, but if you could figure out how to get them into the roadmap, might help to build political capital. That's really to be what differentiates, you know, an effective product owner from a really awesome product owner. Right. I, I think you're right, Amos, that they have to be decisive and they have to be confident in their decisions. But I think there are, most people will respect that if they feel like they're being talked to honestly and that their needs are properly being weighed. I don't think you have to be slimy or sleazy or anything. You can be straightforward with people and, you know, and show them exactly why it is we're doing this and not that, you know, even if, you know, they really want that. And that's the reason why I'm okay with it being anybody on the team from a developer to a QA is because as long as that person is a straight shooter, then I'm not worried about about what other roles they are possibly playing along with it. As long as they can be open and honest and take criticism and give criticism back on what decisions are being made, then I'm okay with it. Is it really reasonable to have someone on the team dealing with 15 groups, though, and still get their job? Well, not in this big case, but I think okay. in small cases where you, might, where you have like two or three people that you have to deal with, it might be okay, especially depending on the pace of the product or the project. Uh, and how how often you have to deal with changes? Maybe maybe they're the people that you're working with are, are pretty good about hey you're prioritizing everything, and a lot of times you don't even have to come talk to us. 
So, so Amos, my, and actually I, I have a, it's a, it's not a well-documented activity or even call it a game, but it's something that speaks to this and I call it definition of success. This, it's more like a test. And, and really to what you're saying is, you know, pick a team, you know, a team, everyone's on it, and go around and ask the team unannounced if they understand what success means for them at this very moment. And try the experiment, and I think you'll find a lot of times you don't get a really good answer from a lot of people. And I think that that's a metric, or that's a kind of a gut check you could use to say, is the, is the duty of the product owner being appropriately supported? Obviously, a smaller team, a smaller project, you could probably do that with you know, people on the team sharing the role. The larger things go, the more time and effort that will be required to ensure that the team understands what that mean of success is. I, I'm trying that tomorrow. Is it is it the success of the what is the success of the team for the team ask mean to you or for ask, the product or for you personally? Again, we're doing let, let's scope this as it's 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 focused on the context of the team. It's a whole team approach. It's not about an individual. It's not about getting a promotion. It's about the team. So ask them two questions: what it means for the team overall to be successful, and then secondly, how what they're doing at this very moment how it is supportive of that overall success criteria. I think that's a, I think that's a good approach. One of the things I wanted to add in Jason to this whole, whole topic of product ownership, and you mentioned the politics of product ownership. And at the beginning of this podcast, we talked a little bit about what did we do in the old olden days, if you will. One of the reasons uh, that we got people into a big room and said, you know, here we are. We this this is your this is now your moment. This is your chance to get your voice heard. And a lot of people remember that. And now today, when we come in with this agile methodology, a lot of those people still think in that same mindset. And so there's a lot of pressure on the project, on the product owner, to listen to and hear all of the things that everybody thinks that they want to have heard and that they want in the application. But we have this great power through Agile to demonstrate the ability to deliver meaningful bits of work to the customer. As you can start to deliver those small increments of work into production, get working code out there and show people that the project is going to continuously deliver, then those folks kind of back off from some of those positions and they are comfortable with the product owner saying, hey, we'll put it in the backlog. If we get time, we'll work on it. We'll try and prioritize it. And a lot of people kind of back off and give the product owner some room to navigate and make the decisions that he needs to make for the project to be successful. So is the product owner's job then to make the other people feel empowered a little bit? That's what it sounds like. They are asking for something and he's giving them what he can when he can. And just enough to keep them happy and feeling empowered that their decisions are going into the product. So previously, I talked. I mentioned you know the number one responsibility of product owners is to go build relationships and sustain relationships with stakeholders. And what's your what's your guys' thoughts on why that's important? I'll answer that. I'll answer that, Jason. For the co-hosts here, okay. Go ahead. One thing. One thing I want to say to Amos's point was. Is the product owner's job to um, appease the other people in the that are that are asking for things, the other customers? I don't think necessarily. I think that's the team's job to demonstrate the ability to continuously deliver. And Jason, back to your question, can you restate your question so I can remember it? Uh, I had mentioned it was important to ensure a product owner is, is devoting sufficient time to build relationships. Why do those relationships matter? Yeah, <clears throat> I think there's a number of reasons why they matter, and, and they're all tied to the success of the project. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things that could go wrong if you completely ignore your user community. Okay, that's the wrong answer. I'm looking for a one-word answer. Let's give it to Nate. Let's see if Nate's got it. I think it's because they're going to have to, at some point, they're going to have to say no. And at the point when it comes down for them to say no, they're going to have to have a, a good enough relationship that the customer understands why they're saying no and is willing to accept that and, and listen to them. Okay, I like that. That's not what I was thinking of. I'm going to say it's wrong because it did not align to my criteria. Oh, so, I, I, so, 
you said Maybe one you word. Maybe you get the last shot. Go for I, it. One I, word. I, I'm sure that Nate was right there because I thought it is before he started talking. And then, like, when he was talking, it was yes, 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 is trust. You're building Thank trust. Thank you. Abe is Scotty. Yes, it's all and about we trust. already have an episode going. Yeah. Yes, but but it's this whole thing and and this is where again we could say that sometimes you know even as even as practitioners we need to do a gut check to say are we doing everything in our power to build trust with the people that we work with and knowing that trust it's like an investment you don't just build it but after you build it you have to sustain it and if anything some of the most distrusting scenarios evolve with you as a as a you know regardless of your role you build a relationship you gain trust, and then you abandon the people that you built trust with because you think they got it. And at that juncture, you're actually become further behind the curve, and you'll lose influence. And we'll get into this scenario, all these scenarios we're talking about, where ultimately the challenges the product owner has are because the product owner and the team they're supporting are not trusted in the eyes of the business stakeholders. Well, that's that's fair. I think that there are a couple of situations where having trust is proven out and one of them is when you have to say no and the other one is when you have to say we screwed up and and we didn't make it or we're gonna have to do this again or whatever and uh, and those are the times when you really know is the customer trusting us or not because is it weird that that's my favorite conversation to have with customers is when when something hasn't gone right yes it's weird i I feel like It's hard. It's hard to have that conversation. So when I have that conversation successfully, I feel really good about it afterwards. I also feel that we've built even more trust than in any other situation. And we've gained the most insight. I feel like like every project gains the most insight by failure. And not, you know, too too big of a failure is bad, but like little failures, that's where we I feel like we gain the most. Well where you learn. Right. It is where you learn. Uh but we're it's it's hard to it's hard to run a project with uh, just on on learning. You know, I wonder if we keep yeah. jumping in and talking how long Ty's supposed to hold his hand up. <laughs> I'll That's... give you the I'll give you the finger now. The uh, what I wanted to say is it, it's about again maybe I've maybe I've been drinking the financial services school aid too long, but see I, I'd love to encourage people to think That's about trust. Well, but think about trust as a investment and knowing that. You know, and I'll, I'll use the terminology, okay, but you're going to go buy a car, okay? Uh, there's two ways you can go buy that car. You can do smart things that improve your credit score. So when you go get a loan, you'll get approved. Or you could go run up a bunch of credit card debt and, you know, not and default on your loans. And then good luck trying to, um, you know, get that loan. So I think if, if the, there's a strong Wait, 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 say, there's a third way. Take okay. Back. Pay cash or a fourth way, go steal a car. Okay, there's lots of ways. But again, back to the back to the story. All too often, I think teams miss the opportunity to invest in building relationships that sustain trust with stakeholders. Whereby, when you have to have that crucial conversation about, oh my gosh, something broke, you have some credit built up that the product owner and the team are trusted with whatever solution they propose to overcome that challenge. You know, one thing that I hear, which I hear that. The trust is important to have the conversation. Yes. Um, having that conversation, Amos said that's his favorite thing to do. Hopefully, if, if you have a product owner who's, who's there, who's present with you, who's engaged with you, there's very little to have a conversation about because that product owner should be living with you and experiencing exactly what is going on so that there's no surprise that something is off track so that you know you're you're not going to make quote unquote make a date that the product owner is responsible for being there i think and participating in that fully and then the the conversation there's very little bit of a conversation to have it's like yeah we're here this happened and the product owner is part of that knows right. that going in no, no flyby product owner. Yeah. Good. Well, it's funny actually. One thing I wrote in the notes here is um, it was at the agile, it was at the um, the deep agile conference uh, a week ago. Uh, Jeff Morgan or Jeff Cheesy Morgan from Lean Dog, he did a skit where he got volunteers from the audience to act out 
challenges within agile development. And they videoed it, and I, it's, I don't know where it is going to be posted, but it's hilarious because it depicts this problem where the product owner is not involved with the team because all they do is they go to meetings. And, and so I'll take the homework and say, this is a funny video that everyone should watch, but it's scary how realistic it is in many environments. So, Nate, did we answer all of your questions about product owners tonight? I think so. Um, I think that was, that was pretty helpful, uh, trying to kind of figure out how to do it. And, you know, I think I'm still on the, on the line for how do we get somebody ready to do that? You know, what, what do we do? And, you know, if it's a role and not a person on the project, you know, what's the right way to choose who's, who has that role? But I, I think that was very helpful. I think uh, down to a single individual, if it does come down to a single individual, that that person may very well be the most important person to the project to the point where if that person disappeared or won the lottery or something like that, that that could cause the greatest amount of detriment to the project. That that person is, as I envision it, has a, a great deal of responsibility with holding the project product vision and, and um, helping prioritize things and being that conduit into the business for everything that you need from the business to do the work you need to do. That's just a very critical, crucial role. So it's, it's something that we shouldn't take lightly. Yes. About, yes, uh, Jason. Oh. I, was, I was say, John, I want to challenge that because that statement, which actually all of it I agree with, if you listen to what you said, it's very unagile because it, it talks about having a person who could be a single point of, of failure. In some contexts, he could be considered, a, or he or she could be considered a hero, you know, the person that saves the day by figuring out what to do. Um, and many of those are anti patterns that you know, that we coach against. So how do you do the, how do you have a product owner that doesn't become the hero that can take a vacation and the team can still be successful? Yeah, I, I had a, I had a, an approach for that that I mentioned as we were speaking, and that is to have it actually be more than one person. So maybe you have two people that pair up and do kind of a two in the box sort of thing where those people uh, go to all the meetings together. I mean, it's a big commitment. It's a big commitment for a business to to commit a single person, let alone two people. But I think you commit two people, uh, they partner and and they participate as a as kind of a single entity. But that way, when somebody has to take vacation or go to another meeting or uh, deal with a sick family member, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, there's somebody else that can kind of step in as their second lieutenant. And come in and, and take over for them. What I wanted to add to that, John, is that I think in a lot of contexts, um, I don't know who to blame for this one, but I think the product owner role is this the value and impact of it is miscommunicated to various business stakeholders. And it, it's seen as this kind of person that, you know, helps the team to figure out what to do. And well, that sounds it's important about building the message that. I don't hear it get communicated enough that I think would resonate well is talking about how the product owner is there to mitigate delivery risks. So we want to develop software. This is a person who is here to safeguard the business interests and ensure that the software that's developed aligns to the needs of the business. And I don't ever, I don't ever hear people talking about risk mitigation as part of the product owner role. But again, I'll put it up there as probably the number two thing that the product owner should be due after they focus on building relationships. One, one of my points that I put into to the discussion document for tonight was this idea of, I don't know if this is my idea or if I heard this somewhere else, I'm sure it wasn't my unique idea, but that the commitment by the business to pony up a product owner is actually like a litmus test for how invested they actually are in that project. If they can't commit a product owner to a project, then they're not really committed to executing the project. So we're back to product owner, customer position. Yeah. In that case, yes. Uh, well, and <clears throat> I kind of agree with that. I feel like whenever I've had product owners that have not been part of the customer uh, and it's been taken on more as a team role, um, 
sometimes the team gets to a point where, uh, and I think that the title of it, product owner, is the problem here is that it's, hey, it's this guy's, not mine, it's him. He's the owner, he's the product owner, the chief, he makes all decisions, and, and we just stand back and let it happen. And I, I've seen that tendency on a lot of teams that haven't been doing agile development for a long period of time. Well, guys, let's wrap up. And I think it's been a good discussion about product owners. So um, we, can, we can talk about this more another time, but I think tonight we're out of time and we'll go and do our picks. Does anybody have a last word? I know that there was some deep teasing that the Agile Factor was going to have a closing Well, the thought. Agile Factor was, well, so whoever structured the discussion uh, through a talking point about what it takes to be a good one, and, and I think that there again, as I mentioned, I think I've seen, um, as I've mentioned, I've seen some product owners that I think probably need some coaching. I've seen some product owners that are effective, and I've seen some product owners that I will say are truly awesome. What the awesome ones are doing is they're using techniques like innovation games to really draw in stakeholders and help people uh, and, and get more input about what needs to go into a product for it to be successful. And I guess the kind of summarize everything we talked tonight is all that stuff, not development, it takes time. But it, the ultimate the ultimate benefit it provides is building relationships that can sustain trust. You heard it right here, folks, from the Agile Factor. <laughs> Thank you, John, for the shameless plug. All right, let's go to the picks, to the picks, to the picks, picks, picks. <laughs> Who would like to go first tonight? How about Jason? All right, so I have three tonight. Um, so very much... Uh, from out of the Deep Agile Conference uh, up in New England a couple weeks ago, uh, and I'm going to butcher a name pronunciation here, which is embarrassing, uh, uh, Ellen Gottsteiner was talking about, uh, she talked about her new book, Discover to Deliver, which has a, a seven-dimensional approach or seven different categories for how you develop a very strong definition of what a project or a product is. Um, related to how to be an effective product owner, check it out. Great. Great reference point. Uh, so that's pick number one. Book you can book you can get off Amazon. Number two is I'm going to put a plug it out for those in the St. Louis area. St. Louis Limited Work in Progress Society. We're having our one year anniversary celebration. We've been having a society to talk about lean and Kanban for one year. It's it's free. It's open to everyone, and we're going to have a party to celebrate that on December sixteenth, twenty thirteen, in St. Louis. Details are posted on our meetup site, uh, which we'll put a link to in the show notes. And last but not least, as I kind of got a little creative last week, I uh, wanted to get people kind of pumped up about um, just kind of to celebrate and pumped up for Thanksgiving. And so I had this crazy idea of what I called Agile Thanksgiving, which is just a real simple way to kind of do a little bit of team reflection. It doesn't require you have a meeting, but it's a way to encourage a team to come together to reflect on all the great and wonderful things that, you know, they, that a team experiences from the members of the team each day, throw it up on a wall, look at it. And it can really help to develop and sustain intrinsic motivation. We'll put the URL to the blog post in the show now. Great picks, Jason. I'll go next. My pick, I have one pick tonight. Actually, it's kind of two, depending on how you look at it. I really got tired. We use planning poker on, on my team for estimates. And I got tired of handing out the planning poker cards every time. And I thought, you know, this is, this is silly. This is uh, the 21st century now, right? I was like, we should be doing this with our smartphones. So I did a little research and, and found uh, one app that's on both iTunes and the Play Store that fit our needs. It's called Scrum Poker, and it's just a thing that lets you kind of flip through different cards that you're going to use as your, as your planning poker estimate and uh, told everybody on the team they could download it and use it. So that's my pick tonight. It's called Scrum Poker, and I'll have links in the show notes to the app on both iTunes and the Google Play Store. Nate, what's your pick tonight? Yes, I have one pick, and um, my pick is called Control Plane. It used to be called Marco Polo for you Mac users out there. Um, I, I love this app. It's uh, free, it's open source, and what it does is very handy. It allows you to set up context um, in which you will be, and then based on those contexts, it will change the settings on your computer. So, for example, if you have a printer in your office that you always use that you want to be your default printer, and you have one at home that uh, that you want to be your default printer when you're at home, you can just 
give it enough information so it can figure out where you are. And that could be that could be anything from uh, what wireless networks are available to uh, what particular like to to the serial number um, power uh, power uh, that you are providing to your laptop. Um, it could be whether you're on Ethernet or not. I mean, there's all these things that you can choose from so that it can automatically switch you around. It's great for the office because I have it. When I plug into my wired network at the office, it automatically switches off Wi-Fi and then turns it back on as soon as I unplug. It's really awesome. So uh, I've been using it for a while. I, I would not have recommended it before because a lot of it was broken. But back in September, they did an update and it fixed all the stuff that was broken for me. So now I think it's really great. So. Uh, the URLs in the show notes, but controlplaneapp.com. That's a great pick, Nate. I'm afraid to, I'm almost afraid to put that on my Mac because I'll geek out with it and like spend two days figuring out all my configuration I know, settings. Totally. Well, I'm, I'm upset that, that you can't pair your iPhone with your Mac. I don't know why that, well, you can, but then as soon as you try <sighs> to start it up from the phone, it won't let you do it. I don't know why that is because what I want is when I walk away from when my Bluetooth, when my phone is no longer near my Mac, I want the screensaver to turn on. I bet so, that app doesn't have an effective product owner who understands that use case. That's exactly the problem. It wasn't the app. That's Apple that won't let your phone pair with your Mac laptop iPhone. So operating systems all. have features too and they should actually have product owners but that's another discussion. No, I'm with you. I'm just... Uh, I just want to make sure that the control plane guys aren't getting the blame for that. All right. And last but not least, Amos King, what are your picks? All right. Um, I, I kind of went with an app like, like Nate did. Uh, so I quit commuting a while back and I, I think everybody kind of knows that, but because of that, I don't get time to listen to my podcast anymore. Uh, uh, going from a two hour drive to a three minute drive kind of kills that. So I found speed up. It's just 99 cents on iTunes. And it allows you to speed up the playing of anything that is a podcast in iTunes. Uh, it is really nice, um, and I didn't have to spend a bunch of money to go buy some some other player. Uh, I still haven't found the killer feature in any other player to skip out of iTunes, even though a lot of people hate it. Um, my second pick is standing. So I've, I've been standing for uh, like a little bit last week, and this week's. So about a week worth of work time now, and it's been pretty fantastic on, on my back and my health. Um, now I just need to find a pair of shoes that make my feet not hurt while I'm standing all day. No, uh, you need to do yoga. There's no such thing as a pair of shoes that will keep your feet from hurting from standing all day. I, I, I'm thinking of just figuring out how to take my shoes off and stand well enough without yeah. go barefoot. That's uh, my yoga. That's, that's my preference is standing without shoes. I've been standing Agile for yoga. years. <laughs> and then uh, a laugh is Financial Peace University from Dave Ramsey. I had to put this in there because we talked about buying a car with uh, a loan tonight. And uh, it's been a, quite a few years since I've even had a credit card or anything like that. Uh, I don't. I don't do anything on credit, and it has been fantastic. I and I found out that if you go buy a car at the last day of the month and the last day of quarter, and you use cash, you can get it at way cheaper price than you can with any loan. So, um, Financial Peace University, good way. Live like no one else, so that you can live like no one. All right, guys, that was great picks. I have one last uh, little commercial that I want to do for the This Agile Life podcast. We've recently created a private community on Google+, and we want to invite you all to continue this discussion with us there on our private Google+, community. Come on out there and, and sign up for the private Google+, community. You'll be able to interact with the hosts of the show. You'll be able to help us decide on future topics for the show, and you'll be able to engage with us in our lighthearted tomfoolery that we uh, demonstrate on the podcast every week. So you can check that out by going to our website, by going to thisagilelife.com, and by clicking on the Join the Community link in the menu bar. We'd love to have you join our community, and uh, we'll be inviting all the past guests from our shows and all of the co-hosts of This Agile Life to participate in that community and to share our thoughts and ideas with you out on our community. 
So guys, that's all we have time for today. I'd like to thank my co-hosts for joining me and give them a chance to tell you where they can, where you all can find out more about them on the internet. Amos, where can folks find, find you? Uh, I can be found on GitHub and uh, Twitter at Adcron, A-D-K-R-O-N, and as always, my crappy website, dirtyinformation.com. Great. Nate, where can folks find you on the internet? Uh, I am on Twitter at Nate Mackey, N-A-T-E-M-C-K-I-E, and I occasionally post on our company's blog, blog.asynchrony.com, A-S-Y-N-C-H-R-O-N-Y. Mr. Agile Factor, where can people find you? You can find the one and only Agile Factor at theagilefactor.com or on Twitter at the Agile Factor. We got a blog up on the Agile Factor, and as Nate mentioned, I actually occasionally do some posting within asynchrony also. So, as we discussed a few episodes back, I have a very complicated content management strategy for how we do that, but it's all out there and it's all there for everyone to see. Great. You guys can find out more about me at johnsextro.com, and you can follow me on Twitter at JC Sextro. Thanks for listening and keep living this agile life.